Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. I'm going to entitle this section, The Great Exchange. We give Jesus our old life, which is dying. We give him our sin and death, in other words, and he takes care of that, and then he gives us his life and righteousness. And there are several aspects of this passage that relate to that overall theme. So that's what we're going to call it. Our context is this. In the first 10 verses of 2 Corinthians 5, Paul has been talking about the resurrection body, that when we die, we're not, we're not going to be naked. We are going to have a resurrection body, just like he talked about in 1 Corinthians 15. He says we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that we can receive the good things that we have done in the body, so we can receive rewards for that, or lack of rewards if we have done evil. And that's what the previous context was about. Now he's talking about the minister of reconciliation in the last half of chapter 5 of Second Corinthians. So we start in verse 11. Therefore, because we know the fear of the Lord, we seek to persuade people. We are completely open before God, and I hope we are completely open to your consciences as well. Therefore, because we know the fear of the Lord, the previous verse that he just read, we ought to get the context here. He says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, this is verse 10, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good for evil. Therefore, verse 11, because we know the fear of the Lord, knows because we know we're going to be judged for what we're doing, and we're not doing this in a corner where nobody can see, but we're doing it openly before the Lord, and we know the fear, the all the reverence of the Lord. That's why we seek to persuade people. Seek to persuade people of what? Well, it could be that Paul was trying to persuade some of the Corinthians that he was not evil. He spent first, all of 1 Corinthians and so far all of 2 Corinthians trying to convince the Corinthians that he was a worthy apostle, that they should be listening to him. And what he's saying is, look, I'm going to have to justify to Christ all the actions that I've taken with you Corinthians. I'm going to have to justify it to Christ when I am judged at the judgment seat, the tribunal of Christ. And therefore, I know the fear of the Lord, and that's why I'm trying to persuade you people that I'm doing this out of a good conscience. He says we are completely open before God. I hope we are completely open to your consciences as well. He's saying, look, I'm doing this before God. My conscience is clear. I'm not going to be judged by you guys or by the false apostles that you're listening to. I'm going to be judged by Christ. Now, here's another idea, and this is just an idea of mine. It's probably not true, but... It could be when Paul says we seek to persuade people, again, that we is the editorial we. He's talking about we, either we, Paul and his fellow apostles, or we himself. He says we are not, he says that we we are seeking to persuade people. It could be that Paul is trying to persuade people to avoid a negative judgment at the tribunal of Christ. He's saying, look, we're all going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ, verse 10, and therefore we're trying to persuade people, hey, don't get yourself in a situation where you're going to lose your rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. That could be. But I think that the NIV Study Bible's idea that Paul is trying to persuade people that he's a true apostle better fits for the context. We go to verse 12, 2 Corinthians 5. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us. In other words, we're not bragging again. Paul had to constantly, he was constantly asserting his apostleship, and it sounded like bragging. And so he said, oh, look, I'm not bragging. I'm not commending, we're not commending ourselves to you again. I'm not commending myself to you again. But I'm giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you may have a reply for those who take pride in the outward appearance rather than in the heart. In other words, Paul is saying, look, I'm doing this to assert my apostolic authority in advance of and ahead of these phony baloney apostles who were trying 
to supplant me in your eyes. Now, Paul says you need to have a reply to these guys who are snookering you. And I'm trying to give you a reply so that you can give them a good reply. And I'm just trying to point out all the good things I've done for you Corinthians. And then he says that these people that need a reply are people who take pride in the outward appearance. Now, here we get a hint of who these false teachers are or what motivated them. The NIV Study Bible says these false teachers were interested in money, popularity, and self-importance. John Gill says they gloried in their learning and eloquence. They were Greekified philosophers and rhetoricians. When Paul says that these people take pride in their outward appearance, he may have been referring to, this is my idea, maybe he was referring to his unimpressive outward appearance that he had. He was short and he wasn't eloquent. All the pictures of him always show he's bald, but I don't know how people know that. But he's kind of ugly, kind of like Socrates, you know. Well, who knows? He, he, didn't, look, he didn't look like Harry Grant, apparently. And he didn't speak like Ronald Reagan. He didn't have that rhetorical skill. But by golly, his opponents did. And so he was dealing with fleshly people. And he was trying to combat their fleshly appeals with his spiritual appeals. Then when Paul says, we are not commending ourselves to you again, 5.12, he's picking up a theme that he's already started in 2 Corinthians 3.1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Are we bragging again? Or do we need, like some, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Paul's saying, uh, look, you... We're not bragging. I'm just pointing out a fact to you. I don't even need a letter of recommendation because you know me. You know who I am. You know that I started your church. So Paul is guarding himself against his confident assertions that he makes in these in these two letters, First and Second Corinthians. We can see one of these confident assertions in Second Corinthians 2.17. For we are not like the many who market God's message for profit. On the contrary, we speak with sincerity in Christ as from God and before God. So Paul said, look, we're sincere. We're speaking from God and before God. God sent us. And we're standing here operating in his presence under his judgment, under his discerning eye. But what are our opponents doing? They're out there making a fast buck off of you sucker Corinthians. That's what they're doing. They're marketing God's message for profit. And Paul says that, these opponents of his, in verse 12, 2 Corinthians 5, they take pride in the outward appearance rather than in the heart. They don't take pride of what's in their heart. So Paul is saying his conscience is clean. The false apostles are not because they're not proud of what's in their heart. 2 Corinthians 1:12, Paul said this, For this is our confidence, the testimony of our conscience, is that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially towards you, with God-given sincerity and purity, not by fleshly wisdom, but by God's grace. Sincerity purity, clear conscience. 2 Corinthians 5.13, for if we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we have a sound mind, it is for you. Paul is saying they're accusing us of being nuts. Well, I'm not going to argue whether I'm nuts or not, or whether I have a sound mind or not, because if I am nuts, if, they, if they're right in saying I'm crazy, well, I'm crazy for God. I'm a fool for Jesus. Or if it turns out that they're wrong and I have a sound mind, well, it's because I am using my sound mind for you, Corinthians. In other words, it doesn't matter whether I'm crazy or not. I'm working for you, and I'm working for God. Now, the NIV Study Bible says that when Paul says, if we're out of our mind, he's probably referring to a charge by his, apost his fake apostle enemies, who were probably asserting that Paul was suffering from a kind of religious mania. For example, his sensational conversion on the road to Damascus. They said, oh, he's nuts. He had a vision. Yeah, he's a crackpot. Or maybe it's because Paul said, I speak in tongues more than you all. He's a nut. Well, Paul was actually accused of being out of his mind later on, but not for having spiritual revelations. 
but for learning, but being too intellectual. Paul couldn't win. People are going to call him crazy no matter what he did. This was when he was before Festus. In Acts 26-24, Festus was a Roman official. And we read this in Acts 26-24. As he was making his defense this way, as Paul was making his defense, Festus acclaimed in a loud voice, You're out of your mind, Paul. Too much study is driving you mad. Well, Festus was he was the one that was mad. He was the one that was nuts. He didn't understand Paul. Paul didn't have too much study. Paul knew exactly what he was talking about. But he was accused of being nuts. And these false apostles in Corinth accused him of being nuts just like Festus did. So you see, application point here, you preach the gospel, there are going to be a lot of people in this world that think you're crazy. And we're just, as Christians, going to have to get used to the fact that the most incredible and powerful message that the world has ever known, the most liberating message that the world has ever known, there's a lot of people that are going to say we're crazy, and they, my friends, are the fools, not us. We go to 2 Corinthians 5.14. For Christ's love compels us, since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. Now, this simple little verse has a lot of theology in it, so we're going to have to break it down. First of all, we'll start with the word for. For Christ's love compels us. Why is that, therefore? In order to explain Paul's enthusiasm, which led him opponents to say he was crazy in other words in verse 13 paul says hey if we're out of our mind is for god then he says hey if christ's love compels us in other words if i'm crazy it's because christ's love has compelled me to be crazy christ's love compels me i can't help it i love him so much now christ's love by the way could be either paul's love for christ or christ's love for him it could either be one's love our love for christ or christ's love for us that's the old subjective objective genitive problem in Greek that you run into constantly. They can go either way. It doesn't really matter. Let's just say I always prefer to say it's because Christ's love for me, because his love is stronger than my love for him. So let's just say it means for Christ's love, the love of Christ compels Paul because Jesus loved Paul so much. Paul couldn't help it. He was compelled. He had to go out and preach. And if people thought he was crazy for that, well, that's, that's the way it is. Now, in his craziness, he reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. Now, that little phrase, if one died for all, then all died, has, has got a lot of theology, theological conflict in it. So I'm going to give you my humble opinion after I give you all the options. First of all, before we get to the controversial part, if one died for all, who is that one? Well, that's obviously Jesus. The one is capitalized in my Holman Christian Standard Version Bible. Holman Christian Standard Bible, one is capitalized. So if one, Jesus, died for all, I'm going to call that all, all number one, then all, number two, died. Jesus died for all, all number one, then all died, all number two. Well, let's start with all number one. Jesus died for all. Well, here's some options. Did Jesus die for all mankind without exception? For Paul Pot, for Adolf Hitler? <laughs> for Bill Clinton? For Bernie Sanders? Did he die for all these people? AOC, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, did he die for all them? Well, if you believe in the general atonement, you believe that Jesus died for each and every man and woman on the planet. It's all mankind without exception. And the theological term for that is unlimited atonement. Arminians hold to that. Some Calvinists do. The second option, when we look at all number one, Jesus died for all, that would be this, all the members of the church without exception. Now, the NIV Study Bible mentions that as, a, as an option, and John Gill affirms it. Now, this would allow for limited atonement. In other words, Jesus died for all church people, but he didn't necessarily die for everybody he could have. 
doesn't say one way or the other, but at least it allows people who believe in limited atonement, which is that Jesus died only for the elect, that would allow that interpretation to fit here with no trouble. It wouldn't prove it, but it would allow it. So that's option number two. Jesus died for all members of the church without exception. Option number three. Jesus died for all mankind without distinction of nationality. For example, Jesus died for all Jews, Gentiles, Mongolians, Chinese, Australians, Californians, French people, English people, etc. All men, women, you know, slave, free, all of the demographic categories you can think of. Now, all is used in that sense a lot. That's real easy to prove. That's another theological argument between the Calvinists and the Armenians. It comes up a lot. But look at a lexicon. There's no question that it can mean that. So that's a perfectly good option, too. So there are three options. He died for all mankind without exception, sinners as well as Christians. Option number one. Option number two, he died for all people in the church, the elect, without exception. Not all mankind, but the elect, without exception. That's option number two. Option number three, he died for all mankind without distinction. He died for all groups of people, if you will. Now, I'm not going to tell you what I think the right answer is until I discuss all the options for, op- for all number two. One died for all, then all number two died, then all died, all died. Well, well, who is it that died? Well, here's the options. It could be all Christians died to sin and to the old self. Then if you study Bible and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown mentioned that as an option. So it would be if one died for all, whether it's all Christians or all mankind, without exception, without distinction, We'll skip worrying about that for right now. If one died for all, then all Christians died to their sin and to death. They died to their old self, in other words. Option number two, then all died. Christ died for all, then all died. That means the whole human race dies in their sins. Alfred Barnes holds to this. All right, so those two options for all number two is... All died to their sins. That would be all Christians died to their sins. Option one and option two would be then all mankind died in their sins. Now, if you take it to mean all Christians died to their sins, then limited atonement fits fine because you could say if one died for all Christians, then all Christians died to their fleshly lives, their old selves. That's the typical Calvinist view. There's another possible Calvinist interpretation. If one died for all nationalities, then all Christians died to their sins. But I don't think that's it, because then you're making all, in the first case, mean all without distinction, and all number one would be all without distinction, then all number two is all without exception. Let me say that again. If one died for all without exception, then all without all Christians without distinction... Excuse me, let me say that again. If one died for all Christians without distinction then all christians without exception died to their old nature so you're switching from all without distinction to all without exception as you go from all number one to all number two and i don't like that because that's not parallel so the best way to look at it to me is if one died for all christians then all christians died to their flesh that would be the best limited atonement view you could have the best armenian general atonement view that you could come up with if if one died for all mankind, then all mankind died in their sins. Now, the next question I have, if the Armenians are right, if God, if Jesus died for all mankind, and then all mankind died, I have a question to ask, why would Paul say that here? What is his point of just bringing up general atonement in the middle of his discussion of 
hey, I've got a sound mind. My sound mind's working for you. What's that got to do? Or you could go to the next verse, verse 15 in 2 Corinthians 5. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Well, does that sound like all of mankind dying in their flesh? Or does verse 15 sound like, and he died for all Christians so that those who live as Christians should no longer live for themselves because they're Christians, but for Jesus who died for them, for Christians, and was raised. So in other words, verse 15 is obviously talking about Christians. It's not talking about all mankind. So just going by the context, even though logically the general atonement view makes sense, if, if Jesus died for all mankind, then all mankind died. Contextually, why in the world would Paul say that? He's talking about Christians here. He's trying to urge the Corinthians to live for Christ, to live a life of righteousness, to no longer live for themselves. So I take a limited atonement view on this on this verse. I know a lot of Calvinists don't like that term, limited atonement. They think it it's pejorative. They like particular atonement. Well, I'm not going to worry about terminology so much. I never have been too concerned about marketing. But I will say this. Even the Arminians who believe in a general atonement, their atonement is limited. Their atonement is limited in effectiveness. Because if they say that Jesus died for all wor- the whole world, and then Paul Pott and Adolf Hitler and other people like that didn't accept Jesus, Jesus' blood, sacrifice, and therefore the, the general atonement failed. It was limited in its extent and its power. It failed because these people didn't make it to heaven. They went to hell. And so, you know, you want to complain about my atonement being limited. I just love it if an Armenian tells me my view of the atonement is limited. My God is limited. Hey, your God is limited too, Mr. Armenian, because your atonement fails for, in fact, the majority of the human race are not saved because of your atonement. Your atonement has failed. It's limited in its power. But anyway, we'll try not to get it too much into theology here. I know that's a contentious point and it's difficult. There's other, well, I, I, I'm lying. I got to say one more thing about this. If Jesus died for Paul Pot, the mass murderer, and Paul Pot never forgave himself, never asked for forgiveness, then that means that Paul Pot goes to hell and pays for his sins, right? That's payment number one. But then didn't Jesus die on the cross with his atonement? Didn't he pay for Paul Pot's sin too? His general atonement. The blood was for everybody in the world. So that means there was two payments for sin. Is that just? Does that sound like a just God to you? Anyway, that's it. I'm not going to say any more about limited atonement. Except this. If you want to read a good book, it's a very difficult book, but it's by John Owen, the great Cambridge theologian in the 16th century. Puritan writers liked him a lot. He wrote a book called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. And I think it was J.I. Packer who wrote an introduction, and a lot of people just read the introduction because they can't read the book because it's a little bit difficult. It's very difficult. But I was on a plane to China, and I was reading that book. I was kind of slogging my way through it. And I said, you know, this guy's got it together. I, I've never seen such a good defense of limited atonement before. I always thought this was going to be hard to defend. And I was reading it, and some guy in the front sitting in front of me saw me reading that book. He says, are you reading John Owen's Death of Death and the Death of Christ? I said, yeah, I'm reading it. Have you ever heard of that book? He said, that's one of the best books I've ever read. Amazing thing to run into somebody like that on an airplane going to China. It was predestined. So we go now to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. Paul continues, and he, Jesus, died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves. And again, I think it makes more sense to say that all is for all Christians, because if it means all people, why would he then say that those who live should no longer live for themselves? <laughs> it would it would be like this. He died for all so that those he died for might go to hell, some of them, and some of them live, for themse- live not for themselves. I don't think so. 
He's talking about he died for all Christians. He died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them was, was raised. Now, when he says the one who died for them, for Jesus who died for all these Christians and was raised for them, that for has two possible meanings. One, it could be in the stead of. In other words, I'm giving you my life for yours. Kind of like the great exchange. Jesus gives his life for me in my stead. That's option number one. Option number two is for the sake of or for the benefit of. I'm giving you this money for your haircut for the benefit of you so that you can get a haircut. I'm not going to argue over what it is. Most people seem, at least I think, most theologians and commentators like to say that that four is in the stead of. But for, one, but for the one who died in the stead of them, in the place of them, or in the old English, in the room of them, as they like to say. But at any rate, the main point of this verse is, hey, we Christians no longer live for ourselves. We live for Jesus. We don't live for ourselves. We live for Jesus. We don't worry about our fame, our academic positions, our vocational positions, our political power, our community status, etc., etc., etc. How much money we got, or if we are an uh, Instagram model and like to be, and you like, and you're a young woman and like to put yourself on Instagram and see how many thousands of clicks you have as you bury a half-naked body. I mean, it's nonsense that people do. Or if you're a man. Well, there's women, too. They do all this daredevil stuff. They fly, they jumping off a hundred-story buildings with these little uh, portable wings, wingsuits. Of course, half of them end up getting killed, and that's the end of their Instagram career. But they're not living for God. They're living for themselves, and they're fools. We don't do that anymore. We live for Christ. We go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. From now on, then, we do not know anyone in a purely human way. Even if we have known Christ in a purely human way, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Now, human way means in a fleshly way, actually, NIV has a worldly way. In other words, as you look at people in the world. Here's what John Gill says about that quote. On account of his carnal descent and fleshly privileges as being of the Jewish nation, a descendant of Abraham and circumcised as he was, or on account of their outward state and condition as being rich and honorable among men, or on account of their natural parts and acquirements, their learning, their wisdom, their eloquence. And Paul is, he's again referring to these hotshot apostles. He says, look, I don't care how much accomplishments they have, if they can quote Plato to the cows come home, if they can win a hundred lawsuits in the Athenian in the Corinthian assembly, I don't care about that. That's purely human. And then he goes to talk about knowing Christ in a purely human way. Even if we have known Christ in a purely human way, that means before Jesus died in his earthly life as a carpenter or as a crucified criminal or as a persecuted Jewish rabbi. Paul doesn't know him that way. He knew him. He didn't know Jesus till he saw Jesus resurrected in his vision. He says, we no longer know Jesus in his worldly way, in his human way. We don't know him as a little babe in the manger or as the carpenter's son. No, we know him as the risen, exalted Christ seated at the right hand of God the Father. He might have been referring to some of his opponents who were probably Jewish people, rabbi types, and some of them might have actually known Jesus in, in Jesus' earthly life. This was not but about 25 years after Jesus was killed and went to heaven. But at any rate, he could care less about these false teachers learning in their eloquence. Now, when Paul says, even if we have known Christ in a purely human way, I'm assuming he's still defending himself personally. He's using the editorial we there. Kind of not quite sound so me-centered when you when you do that. It kind of softens it a little bit. He could be referring to him and, him and his fellow apostles, but I don't think so. 
2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. And look, new things have come. Now, this is, our fa- this is one of the f- most oft-quoted verses in the New Testament. It's a wonderful verse. Let's start with therefore. What's the therefore? Therefore, since we no longer look at Christ according to the flesh, as we just read in the previous verse, Jameson Foster and Brown points out that, since we don't, we're not looking at him as a carpenter, we're looking at somebody who can actually create a new creation in a human being, in a Christian, if he's in Christ. Now it says, if anyone's in, in, anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So you got that's the condition. You want to be a new creation, you got to be in Christ, and that in means in united with, as the NIV Study Bible says, in union with is the same thing. In fact, if every time you see the word in, I, I did a word study on this one time. There's no question about it. You say in, just say united with or in union with. It gives a much fuller meaning than that little skinny preposition in. So if anyone is united to Christ or is united with Christ or is in union with Christ, he is a new creation. Of course, you get in union with Christ by believing in him, getting born again. Now, when he's a new creation, Ephesians 2.10, Paul says this, for we are his creation, God's creation, created in Christ Jesus. We're created for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. We are created. In other words, when the Holy Spirit comes and penetrates your spirit, which was dead, then when his spirit is mingled with your spirit and becomes alive again, then there is a new creation, an imperishable, born-again child of God who's never going to die again. They're going to have eternal life. That's a big deal, being born again. And the analogy with the human birth is very close. In the, in the flesh, you have a sperm and an egg. In the spirit, you have the Holy Spirit as the sperm, and the egg would be our human spirits. And it makes sense that God would do things in parallel. He created the physical world as he, he's in charge of the, physical, of the spiritual world, too. So we're a new creation, a new birth, if you will. We're born again. Now, when that happens, old things have passed away. Now, what can the old things mean? Paul's not specific about that, but it could be the old man has passed away. as in Romans 6, the old dead nature that was destroyed by the new birth. John Gill says it could be the old way of serving God with legal righteousness. No more circumcision and sacrifices and legalism. John Gill suggests it could be that old companions are dropped, as oftentimes happens when you get saved. John Gill says all external things are dropped, things such as riches and honors and learning and knowledge and all the things that the world lusts and clamors after. No, we don't care about that anymore because, look, new things have come. This is the second new in the verse. The first is new creation. Now Paul is talking about new things coming. Now notice this have come. The new things are here right now. As soon as that born again new creation takes place, the new things have come right there, right now. Now what are the new things? Well, it could be the new man in Christ is primarily being referred to, and I think that's what it is. New creation means the new man in Christ, the old man being dead. And by the way, there's so many Christians that say, well, the old man and the new man, the old man's still alive and the new man's alive and they're both living in you and they have a big fight. And if you let the old man win, that means you're not sanctified. If you let the new man win, then you're sanctified. In my humble opinion, I'm going to try to say this as politely as I can. This is absolute nonsense. However, there's a lot of real respected people who teach it. People like Watchman Eve, and has mentioned it in his normal Christian, normal Christian life and 
There's a lot of reformed people that say that. I'm telling you, it makes no sense to me. So you got new man. But for one thing, Paul says clearly in Romans 6, the old man is dead, crucified. What part of crucified don't we understand? For another thing, are you saying that we have an old man and a new man in the Christian, and when we die, the old man goes to hell and the new man goes to heaven, kind of bifurcated and split up at our death? No. That's the flesh that we have to deal with, not the old nature. The old nature has been crucified, destroyed, obliterated, wiped out. It's kaput. So when Paul says that new things have come, I believe he's talking about the new man, everything that's involved with the new creation, the new self. John Gill puts it this way, a new way of serving Christ and the Holy Spirit. Well, it's more than a new method. I think it's a new being. We go now to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Everything is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Now, of course, reconciliation means people, it means the process of making former enemies current friends. We used to be enemies of God, actually, that's in Romans, I forgot the verse, but we are enemies of God, and now we're the friends of God, I believe that's in Romans also. So we formerly were enemies, now we're friends, so we're reconciled, and this, of course, is what Christ is, what Paul is preaching. Now, when he says everything is from God, that means redemption and all that flows therefrom, according to the NIV Study Bible. J.F. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says that everything means all our privileges in the new creation. I think that's what it means. Everything is from God. It doesn't mean everything like coronavirus or scabies or anything like that. It's talking about it's talking about everything that you, everything theological, if you will, everything that has to do with the new creation is from God. God reconciled us to Himself through Christ. It was Jesus was the means by which. God is no longer our enemy, and then God gave us the ministry of reconciliation, the work, if you will, of reconciliation. It is our job to go around and do our work, which is to reconcile people with God, enemies, sinners with God. Verse 19, that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself. God was using Jesus to reconcile the world to, to God himself. Now, when it says reconciling the world, does that mean that everybody in the world is saved? Of course not. Not unless you're an ultimate reconciliation person, which is utterly heretical. But it's talking about those of the world who are of the elect. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world himself. The world is represented by the elect church. And that is who is going to be populating the earth after its redemption and its deliverance from its bondage to decay. It's talking about the elect, reconciling the elect to himself. Why do I say that? Because in the next phrase it says, not counting their trespasses against them. The people in the world, well, the people in the world who aren't Christians do have their trespasses counted against them. So he's talking about the elect. We go to verse 20, 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, we are ambassadors, we are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's the message. Be reconciled from God. God is holy. You're a sinner. God cannot accept a sinner in his presence, so you need to be reconciled. God is your enemy. He wants to be your friend. The basic way you witness to people, and that's what Paul says. He says we're an ambassador for Christ. An ambassador represents his home government, and the president of the home country or the king of the home country. Likewise, we are ambassadors for our king. We represent Jesus, and that's why, you know, if you're going to be an ambassador for Christ, it might be better not shack up with your secretary or build a $23 million house. You know, it makes your king look bad. Ambassadors are very much trusted in politics and government. 
and ambassadors for Christ need to be trustworthy in this, to at least the same degree and maybe more. We go to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's the exchange life. That's what I titled this section of Scripture. Jesus gives us life, and we give him our sin. There's the exchange life. We give him sin and death, which is characteristic of our life. So we give our old life to him, sin and death to Jesus, and he gives a new, his new life to us, which is characterized by righteousness, the exchanged life. Now, Jesus said he made the one who did not know sin. That, of course, was Jesus. And when he says he didn't know sin, it doesn't mean he didn't know about sin. He did not know what sin was. Of course he knew what sin was. It means he wasn't acquainted with it personally because he was sinless. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. Now, a heretic will take this and say, see there, Jesus was not sinlessly perfect because this verse says that he was made to be sin. No, that's obviously not true. He was not a sinful person. Rather, he took the sins of mankind upon himself. He was sin because he had the sin on him, and so therefore he's made to be sin. The NIV margin, in fact, has a sin offering in the marginal reading. He made the one who did not know sin to be a sin offering for us, which case is no problem at all. But that's what it means, even if the text, if, if the marginal text is not the accurate, is not the correct text. It doesn't matter. It means the same thing. Jesus obviously is not a sinner, but he took his sin on us. Here's a quotation from John Gill. He made he was made sin itself by imputation. The sins of all his people were transferred unto him, laid upon him, and placed to his account. He sustained their persons and bore their sins, and having them upon him and being chargeable with and answerable for them, he was treated by the justice of God as if he had been not only a sinner but a mass of sin. John Gill also says this, quote, only by imputation and that none may conclude from hence that he was really and actually a sinner, or in himself so, it is said he was made sin. He did not become sin or a sinner through any sinful act of his own, but through his father's act of imputation. That's basic theology, but it's said in such an eloquent way. I thought I would read John Gill's thoughts to you. Now the last two words of this chapter, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Jesus. In Jesus. Now remember, in means in union with. We are in Christ. We're in union with Christ. If you're in union with somebody, there's nothing that can separate you from him. You're in, over, with, through, around, suffused in. <laughs> you're really tight. And so therefore, if you're in Christ, therefore you share in God's righteousness, in Christ's righteousness. A perfect righteousness. God's righteousness is imputed to us. Our sin is imputed to Christ. And therefore, you are living the exchanged life. And ladies and gentlemen, with that happy thought, we are finished with 2 Corinthians 5. We'll start with 2 Corinthians 6 in the next audio. We will cover the whole of chapter 6, which is about the temple of the living God, which Paul says we are, and the implications therefrom. Hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.